What is love? It's an age-old question, right? What is love? How can we understand what love is, and how can we seek to understand it in greater detail? Uh, something happened a couple of weeks ago. You may have seen this picture if you've uh, got a Facebook or watched the news at all. Uh, this is a picture of uh, an, a police officer in New York by the name of Larry DePrimo. And as he was on his beat, he saw this homeless man who had no shoes, no socks, had compassion on him. And he went up to him and said, you know, don't you have a pair of shoes or a pair of socks? And the guy was like, no, I don't have anything like that. And of course, it was, this is New York, so it's cold. And um, there was a Skechers store just around the corner from where this man was. And so this officer, on duty, goes into the Skechers store and says, listen, I need a pair of thermal socks and a pair of boots. And using his own money, purchased those items, went out, knelt down, and put the socks on the man's feet, put the boots on the man's feet. Someone who was observing happened to catch him in the act. Here is a, a man who was on TV, um, was interviewed, was celebrated, so to speak, because of his act of kindness. Um, and it was, a, it was quite, a, quite a story in the whole blogosphere and the internet, and if you probably caught this. Does anyone see this at all? Okay. Um, you know, his good deed was seen by so many. That wasn't his intention. He didn't even notice that the person was taking a picture. Today's world, you have a phone, you just kind of snap away. But what's interesting is that about a week or so later, this homeless man, his name is Jeffrey Hillman, 54 years old, was spotted on the streets again barefoot. When interviewed, he claimed that his boots were now hidden because he wanted to keep them safe, and he had every intention of selling them on eBay because now they were worth so much. And add to that, he was demanding to be compensated for this picture. Oh, and by the way, Jeffrey Hillman isn't really homeless. He has a Section 8 apartment, food stamps, but he says he likes to panhandle for money. Now, what a, what a great story on the front end. What a great act of compassion by someone who saw a need, reached out, did something out of their own resources, personally knelt down, put these things on this man, and this man, a couple weeks later, literally slaps him in the face by his actions, by his attitude. And friends, it's stories like this that bring cynicism to acts of love and compassion, right? Next time you and I see a homeless person, we're, we're likely to say to ourselves, maybe not out loud, but in our heart, say, you know, get a job. Or you aren't really as bad off as you appear. Or why bother? They are just going to squander any help I give them. Now, let's be honest. We see homeless shysters around, right? They show up on corners, and you have no idea whether you should give or shouldn't give, and, and you wrestle with that. These, these are things that are real in life. But friends, 
in this story, we have a, a microscopic picture of a greater love and a greater shame. And it's the chasm between the love of God and the sinfulness of man. This incredible God who loves mankind by sending his son Jesus Christ to a cross to pay for his sin. And how does man respond to that? This great chasm is connected, is bridged by this act of love of Jesus on that cross. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone, and Jesus is speaking, or he is talking about himself, that, that someone laid down his life for his friend. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is love. Love demonstrated by God to mankind in the person of his son. And yet man hears the message and oftentimes will shake his fist at God. Even though he is the recipient of God's, I want to say, general grace. You know, common grace. Man breathes, enjoys, celebrates, and yet oftentimes will reject the love of God. And so in this passage, we, we come face to face with love, but this love will be on display, uh, on display to us through a context. And I just want you to notice some of the themes that are in this passage. The first theme is this, the departure of Jesus. He's going away. And three times in this passage, we have you know, that kind of that statement, I am going, verse 31 and 32, he says. Where I am going, you cannot come, verses 33 through 35, and there he says that. But then he says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Aha, so there's hope. I'm going, where I'm going, you can't come. And to his disciples, in particular to Peter, where I'm going, you cannot come now. So what he's about to say is given in the context of his departure. And what he is saying is also given in the context of love. I think just a cursory reading of this passage, you're you're drawn to a familiar text, and that is that passage where it says, here's the new commandment, that you love one another. And it can be very easy that you forget the surrounding context and just focus in on that one truth. And it's a great truth, and it's a great commandment, and there's lots that we're going to learn this morning about that, but the surrounding context is all part of that package. So in the context of Jesus' impending departure, the Messiah wants to teach the remaining disciples about the centrality of love, which is at the heart of the gospel. It's a love that finds its source in heaven. It's a love that finds its presence on the earth in the body of Christ. It's a love that, that finds its application in the lives of frail believers. So in this passage, Jesus reveals for us four significant dynamics of divine love to help us live our lives for his glory. The purity of love, the priority of love, the power of love, and the promise of love. Now, we're going to get there. You'll catch it. You'll see it. But this is, this is all now in the context of Jesus' departure. It's in the context of his love, and we want to see that love made very, very clear to us this morning. But I want you also to notice the beginning of this text, when he had gone out. Who's the he that's being talked about here? Not Jesus. It's Judas. 
Judas just left. What was Judas leaving to do? To betray him. So there's the context of betrayal also that undergirds this passage. And Jesus is now in the upper room. Actually, this chapter, the next two chapters, he's going to be talking to his disciples. He's going to be pouring out his heart to his disciples, the 11 that are left. And so these are heartfelt words from Jesus that are really worth our attention. And so this morning, I would just plead with you Although some of this is familiar, and although we could jettison off, because in this passage it also talks about the denial of Peter, I would just caution you to be, I guess, teachable this morning and think through this passage a little differently and see what the context reveals to you about this subject, this beautiful, incredible subject about love. Let's just pause for a moment of prayer, okay? Lord, we thank you for your goodness and, and we thank you, Lord, that we have been blessed to have your word so that we can know you more and we can know what you desire uh, for us and, Lord, what you have done for us and, Lord, how we can be reconciled with you and how that life can continue on um, in you by virtue of your Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And I ask, Lord, that right now that, um, that we would be careful not just to simply settle into things that we already know, but, Lord, we would be open and and uh, willing, Lord, to see a freshness, Lord, to those truths. So help us today, Lord, to, to be humble and receptive. Lord, allow me to be your messenger, to allow your word to come through what I am saying, Lord, accurately and faithfully, and that you ultimately, Lord, will be glorified in all that is done. We ask this in your name. Amen. So let's look, first of all, at what I'm calling the purity of love examined. The purity of love examined. Where, where is it that we go? to find the best example, the best picture, the best understanding, the most purest um, revelation of what love really looks like. And I, I just did a, a quick search on Google, because you know, Google will answer every question you need to ask, all right? They will answer, right? So, so here are some of the, the wonderful loves that, that are, are there for us to observe. One of them is the beautiful story of Emperor Shah Jahal, who was married at 15 and just absolutely loved his wife, they were married for 16 years. She died, died kind of at a young age. And so to honor her, he built this magnificent palace called the what? The Taj Mahal. Now, you may not be familiar with the story, but it's a beautiful story of love. Another one that, that, that comes to mind is the story of the last pharaoh of Egypt, which would be Cleopatra, and her love with one of the generals of Rome. Well, it would be the second general of Rome, right? Because she, first of all, had loved what Caesar but now it's this one by the name of Anthony and both ultimately loved each other so much that when Anthony lost a battle to Octavian he heard that she had committed suicide or that she had died and so he committed suicide but she hadn't died but when she heard that he committed suicide what did she do she also committed suicide as an act of love as an act of loyalty to him and and, and those are stunning examples of the commitment of one person to another whether you think you know, the rest of the story is grand or not. There's some things in there that are admirable. Or, or looking at it completely differently, um, maybe the, the best example of pure love is the result of traveling from or to the ends of the earth to some faraway country and to some obscure village where there is supposed to be this utopian society, a Shangri-La of sorts. And we want to bring that back 
to where we live, you see. This beautiful, wonderful picture of everyone loving one another. Now friends, you're gonna be hard pressed to find any utopian society on this earth. And there's a reason for that. And it's called sin. That utopian society will not be perfect at all. That utopian society will have sinful people ruling in sinful places and sinful people submitting to those sinful rulers and it's a dream. Or maybe if you really, really want to know, um, you go out and you buy one of the popular magazines today about all the different kind of love affairs that are going on in our entertainment culture. It's just a wonderful, just to find out who's with who today versus last week and this, you know. We're living in a culture that is seeking to find a beautiful picture of love. And there are some wonderful pictures out there that we could also talk about, but, but I want to draw your attention to what this passage is telling us because all of, those, all of those examples and other ones that may be good, although they may be more wholesome than others, they all fall short of the purest example of love. If we have eyes to see, we will look at the relationship of the Godhead and step back in wonder and recognize that in that Godhead, we have the most glorious picture of pure love in action displayed for all to see. Now let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at verses 31 and 32. And there we see the mutual desire for glorification on the part of the Father and the Son. Let's read it. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Well, let's just kind of put it in a little bit in seed form. The Son is glorified, and God the Father is glorified in him, and there's a lot of glorifying going on, right? It's kind of a wordy couple of verses there, but there's something going on here that is worth our attention. What does it mean then to glorify. To glorify has the idea of making someone's reputation known. Okay? So Jesus is all about declaring the glory of God. His desire is to display the attributes of his Father. He's revealing his patience, his mercy, his holiness, his compassion, his wrath, his kindness, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his immutability, and omnipresence, just to name a few. He is there demonstrating, reflecting who the Father is to a sinful world. He is glorifying the Father. He is giving a good reputation for his father. He's making him known. That's the idea there. So he rejoices at every opportunity he gets to boast about his father, to make his name known, to establish his wonderful reputation, and to glorify him among men. Now likewise, the father is all about glorifying the son. His glory is revealed by his various names. It's one of the ways He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, Emmanuel, servant, son of man, son of God, savior, king of kings, lord of lords. Again, just to name a few. And, and those are not just titles for title's sake. It's not like we're just kind of someone's writing and all of a sudden, oh, let's call him this, let's call him that. No, they, they all give different facets of who Jesus Christ is. 
looking at Jesus from a little bit of different angle, we could have different perspective, a different understanding of, of the completeness of who Jesus Christ is because the Father desires to give his Son a good reputation among mankind. So there's this absolutely wonderful relationship going on because the Son is seeking to glorify the Father and the Father is seeking to glorify the Son. So now as Judas leaves to betray Jesus, the grandest and most glorious revelation is about to take place. Jesus will glorify the Father by going to the cross where he will take on himself the sin of mankind and he will bear the wrath of his father. God then will glorify Jesus by being faithful to his word, to his plan, to his power, to his promise, to raise him on the third day, to restore him to heaven once again. So they're working together. They're seeking to please one another. They're seeking to honor one another. They're seeking to glorify one another. And they are completely in harmony. There is a purity about this relationship that is on display for us that is revealed in these two verses. This is pure love lived out for all to see. The Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father. Now friends, let's just think about this by means of application. If a husband seeks to glorify his wife, she will experience the deepest love from her husband. So if a husband seeks to glorify his wife, seeks to present her with a reputation that is honorable, that is pure, that is holy, that is majestic because of who she is, she will respond. <laughs> when, a when a wife seeks to glorify her husband, he will experience the deepest love from his wife. The wife will, will respond in selfless, submissive, and pure and honorable love, the husband responds by a selfless, pure love that seeks the best for his wife. So they're both working together because they're seeking the best for each other. They want to honor each other. They want to glorify each other. Now, if this picture of Jesus' relationship with his father is clear for us, it helps us understand what Paul says in 1 Corinthians and chapter 11 and verse 3. Just, just get this now. If He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is whom? God. You work backwards and you say, Look, the relationship between Christ and God is so pure that they seek to glorify each other. It's not God saying, hey, I am the Father here, you're the Son, you do my will. That's not what's going on here. There is this wonderful mutual glorification for the purpose of the plan and for the purpose of, of, uh, of, of harmony and, and love being on display. That, that transcends now into the relationship of husband and wife and to the relationship of Christ being the head of the church. We see this on display, and it is a beautiful picture of what love truly is. And so this beautiful picture of the harmony of pure love can only be found in the Godhead, but it can be pursued here on the earth. So there's a, there's a way you can say, husbands, I want to glorify my wife. Not in the sense that she's God, although I realize that she is, almost, all right? But the, you, the, the idea of glorification there it means you desire for her reputation 
to be the best that it can be. You desire for her to know for a, with a certainty that, that she is the one that you completely adore. And the same would be true for the wife glorifying her husband. You want his reputation to be seen by others as something wonderful, as something strong, as something masculine, as something pure. It's a wonderful picture, friends. So we have this, this great example of the purity of love that is there for us to see. Secondly, I want you to notice the priority of love that is explained. If that is true, if the Godhead is functioning in this, this total capacity of pure love because they are not, you know, the Godhead is not tainted by sin. It is, it is fashioned and shaped by all of its different attributes and they're all pure, they're all holy, they're all right. That love then is also a priority for us and that's ultimately where Jesus is headed here. So after looking at this purity of love, he reminds them that he will be with them for only a little while longer. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, the expression little children is not a belittling statement, it is an endearing statement, okay? These are his children. These are the ones that he has poured his life into for those three years. He spent a lot of time with them. He's taught, they failed, they struggled. And he's now going to be leaving them. Not about you, but if you've been with someone for three years, every day, ministering together, going through hard times together, there is a bond that is made. And if that person is the leader and they're about to leave, that kind of rocks everyone's boat. There's something significant taking place here, and so there's some tender words now that he gives. Now, what's significant about this verse? Number one, it's that Jesus, who is love, will be departing. He is the one whom they truly loved. He is the one who loved them completely and totally, and so his departing would be daunting. Secondly, their love for him now must be transferred to love for one another. You see, he's saying, little children, a little while I'm with you, you will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you're also to love one another. So this love that you've had for me, and this love that I had for you, is now to be transferred over in a new way. Now, next to John 3.16, this is probably one of the more familiar sayings in the Bible. Love one another. All right? That's how it can be whittled down. But the question is, what makes this commandment new? Is it really a new commandment? In one sense, it is not a new commandment. In one sense, it is a commandment that we see in the Old Testament. If you want to write this down or turn there, um, you can turn to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And here's what God says, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's that passage where he, he stamps, he stamps his, his name and his, his conviction because he's God based on what he's just said. You should love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In other words, listen to what I'm saying. 
So it's definitely an Old Testament concept. So it's not just the concept of loving one another that is new. There's something more going on here. And certainly Jesus identifies as loving one another or loving others as the second greatest commandment. So this is not a new commandment because nothing, nothing like it has been said before. But its newness is bound up in three things. And the three things would be this. There's a new standard. And the new standard is Christ. Jesus, by virtue of his example now, is the standard for their love. Right? God has expressed his love in the Old Testament, has he not? But now in the person of Jesus, we find love on display in more specific detail. And we see the things that Jesus has gone through. Ultimately, the greatest act of love is yet to come, and that is him going to a cross and dying for the sins of mankind. So we have this, this wonderful new standard, and that standard is Jesus. He is an example of love. He is the source of that love. And we follow his example, and we gain strength from his example. Secondly, there's a new order, especially for the Jews. For the Jews to hear this new commandment to love one another kind of broke some common norms because the Jews understood love one another in the context of Judaism. But now this church was beginning, and it meant love one another regardless of who they may be. So it broadens now this expression of love. It broadens the focus of love. There is a new order, and that's what's wonderful. It's what's beautiful about the church, is that we are made up of all sorts of different people. Especially here in California, we are a melting pot of ethnic origin. I was sitting at Starbucks just today, and I was talking to, uh, to someone that I see almost every Sunday over there, Tom, and uh, he's, a, he's a guy who lives in a, a kind of a community home over there, and he shows up on Sunday morning. He waits for me and sees me, and I get him coffee, and it's nice, but we're talking, and we're just talking about places he used to live. He said, I used to live in New York, and, and we're just talking about how, how the, the, the cities in New York were in many, many places are still divided into their ethnic regions. And what I mean by ethnicity there is Irish and Polish and Italian. And I mean, to, today, for most people, it's like, oh, they're just Anglo, right? They're just Caucasian. But there's so much ethnicity there, even in those people. And years ago, there was great conflict between those people, right? Remember West Side Story? Okay? And today... The ethnicity thing has kind of changed with, with, with different groups of people. But just remember, all those people are making up the church. And so you and I can walk into God's church, different races, different languages, different people, and we can find ourselves at home. There's no other creation on this earth that has that kind of reality where we can just walk in and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Christ himself that unites us together. It's beautiful, and it's shocking, especially to a culture that practiced the legitim- legitimacy of saying, no, we hate those people, and we honor God by doing that. Remember the Samaritans, right? So a new standard, a new order, a new measure. Now it begins here, but as we continue to read in Scripture, in particular by the, um, by the pen of the apostles, you might want to say, or by the example of Jesus, we come to understand new 
uh, specifics to what it means to love. Now, by, by, by this, this new love, we're not talking about simply the feeling that we have or this broad expression. I mean, this is Christmas time, right, where everyone's supposed to love one another and feel all warm and tingly inside, the kind of thing that the Grinch hates, right? So, all right, good. I'm with you there, right? So, so that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about that kind of superficial warm, tingly kind of love. We're talking about what does love actually look like. And that's where we, we do go to 1 Corinthians 13. If you would, please turn there. Now, understand that 1 Corinthians 13, if it's just taken in isolation, is really a misreading of the passage because the purpose of 1 Corinthians 13 is to give clarity about how the body of Christ is working together to be the body of Christ and we are all different, we're not all eyes, we're not all ears, we're not all feet, um, and we, we have a variety of gifts, and those gifts have to work together, but how do we use those gifts for the glory of God? We must have, as that might want to say, that, that gel, that mortar between the bricks, a love. And it's not kind of this, this warm, fuzzy love that we're talking about, it's a love that is rooted by the example of the Godhead, that seeks to glorify not only God, but maintain a good reputation of those that are around them. All right? So what is it talking about here? Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant, it's, it's, it's not rude, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. Now friends, you, if you just took that, those few verses and you use that as a measurement of the kind of love that is portrayed in culture today, you'll find out that what's portrayed in culture does not match this kind of love. Because this is a new measurement, a more specific measurement, a clarifying measurement. So when we're talking about this new commandment to love one another, it ultimately has a new standard, that's Christ. It has a new order because it's broader than what it was before. And now also we have this new measure that we're seeking to understand and we're seeking to grow in. And so we have this new commandment to love one another. D.A. Carson says this, this new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, profound enough that most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Oh yeah, love one another. When we think about, do we really do that? Oh, it's easy to say. It's harder to do. And friends, as God's children, we are entrusted with this new commandment. It is rooted in the example of Christ. It is explained for us in the pages of God's word. It, its demands are total obedience to God's will that is also revealed in his word. So this love is fashioned and shaped by Christ, his example, his words, and the further revelation of God's word and our obedience to it. You know, did, did Jesus do the will of his father? Of course he did. When he transfers, you know, th this commandment to us, say, now love one another just as I have loved you, is he expecting us to do the will of the father? Absolutely. Same thing. 
1 John chapter 4, turn there if you would please. We read this at the beginning of our service today, but, but now even with the things that we've talked about so far and what we will talk about, this passage will begin to, to, to make a little bit more sense. 1 John 4, 7 and following. Beloved, or ones whom I love, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is John, who wrote the Gospel of John, using similar language from that Gospel, right? Born of God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So we have this incredible picture of the Godhead that is love, that is the source of love, and is the, 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 the mirror example of that. Verse 9, in this the love of God was manifest or made known among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now just get this, in this is love. Not that we have loved God. You don't measure love by how much you love God. Because you'll fall flat on your face real quick. Now it's good to aspire and say, God, I desire to love you. You know, we sing the song, I love you, Lord, and I lift my hands. And it's okay to sing that with a heart that is genuine, knowing that you're likely to fail. But you aspire to do that. That's your trajectory. That's okay. But you don't measure love based on you. You measure your love based on him. So in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the covering or the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, ought, or we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Us. And so love has been expressed for us in the purity of the Godhead. Love is explained by the example of Jesus. Now we will see the power of love exposed for us and how it affects those around us. So listen to the power of love bound up in our obedience to Jesus' command. Verse 35. By this, he says, we're back now in John 13. By this, what's he talking about? This new commandment that you're being obedient to, this loving one another, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, it is our love for one another that will be seen and observed by others. Now, again, it's not that soupy kind of love that is rooted in sensuality and sentimentality. It is that sacrificial and selfless kind of love that Jesus was an example of when he went to the cross and died for our sins. It's the kind of love um, that truly, uh, properly affects those who are part of the body of Christ. Now, we must be careful here that we only see one side of the coin. There are some that would come to this passage and say, aha, see, this is how we are to live our lives. We're just to live our lives so that other people can see what we're doing. And they'll see our kindness, they'll see our joy, they'll see how we sacrifice for one another, and they'll say, aha, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, therefore I must confess him as Lord and Savior in order to enter into heaven. Well, for them to get there from simply observing us is a very, very difficult thing to do. Okay? Jesus did not come simply 
to be love on display, okay? We have the example of Christ. He came to this earth and, and uh, his love for his father was on display through his actions, his attitudes, and the things that he, say, he said. He came and he condescended to man, but he also spoke truth. He also warned man. He also instructed man about his condition and what to look out for. So when, when God loves and he loves in action, he leaves heaven to enter the world of sinful man. He seeks a bloody death to appease his holy wrath. He speaks and teaches and reveals the heart of God. He demands obedience and allegiance. He warns man of this sin. So there's, there's not only action, but there are words going with those actions. Now friends, it's really important to see that. Now, certainly the commandment here is to love one another. And that commandment, based on verse 35, is going to be seen and observed by others but that is not an excuse then to say, well, keep my mouth shut. Because loving one another means that there are times when we open our mouths and we speak because we care and because we're concerned or because we have helpful instruction for them. I mean, what would it be like? You know what it's like. You hear someone's conversation, maybe you're not part of the conversation, and they're, they're talking about some kind of scenario and they're kind of confused, they don't know what to do, and you hear it, you're not meaning to hear it, but you hear it and you know the answer. You have the solution. And so this part of you is like, I don't know if I should go over and say anything. And you kind of, you know, oh, get over and try me into the conversation and finally get it out. But you have the truth. You don't just kind of stand on the side and say, you know, would you like a drink or would you like a cookie or something like that? And hope that the action will communicate the words. Action and words go together. So this is the caution here as we come to this passage is simply to say, Listen, it is our action that is on display, but that action does not mean that our mouths should be shut and all we do is our action before people. But they will see our love on display by the love that we have for one another. And the byproduct of that is that we will then open our mouths to communicate the truth of God to those who are part of the family of God as well as those who are outside of that family of God. So they're words that are seasoned with the gospel, they're words that have God's glory in mind, they're words that desire God's kingdom to grow through our obedience. So, to simply live lives before mankind might seem the right application here, but it is insufficient. People will know us by our love in word and deed. That's the point, okay? Now, I want you to notice here then the power of love exposed. What is the power that is being talked about here or that is revealed for us. God exposes this to us by saying basically this. Your love of one another is the ability or is the means that will affect the hearts of other people. It is a very powerful thing when you act, when you behave in a way that reflects Christ's love to you, to other people. What that means then is this, your example, your words, your life, your allegiance to one another, your commitment to Christ. So get this, when you sin, anyone here sin? When you get angry, when you tell a lie, when you take advantage of someone, when you speak rudely to someone, you and I have an opportunity to glorify God through our example and words. Are we quick to resolve problems? Are we quick to take responsibility when we behave badly? Are we taking initiative to live at peace with others? See, listen, we, we, we live in a sinful world and we are sinful people. 
And the fact that we are sinful means that when we sin, we have an opportunity to glorify God, to give him a good reputation, to acknowledge that it is because of him that we can respond in the way that we're responding. So you say, oh, I can't make it, you know, I'm always going to fail, I'm always going to fall on my face, and I sin, and all that kind of stuff. Okay, okay, we recognize that. We're all in the same boat together. The question is, what do you do when you sin? What do you do when you fall? What do you do when those words come out of your mouth and you can't pull them back again? How do you respond? You respond by showing other people that someone else is Lord of your life. You respond by showing them that it is the love of Jesus Christ toward you that gives you the ability to turn around and say, you know what, I was wrong, I was sinful, I said something that was totally out of place. It offended God, and I know it offended you. Please forgive me, because what's more important than me being right is that we have a healthy relationship together. And the world steps back and says, what kind of people do that kind of stuff? Okay? But it's all rooted in the love of God. So, yes, you sin. Isn't it great, though? But your sin's an opportunity to glorify God. Now, that doesn't mean go out and sin, friends. What it means is you're going to. You're going to fail. But what power we have, what ability we have, and that ability is exposed for us. And so it's through our failure to live and love like Jesus that we can bring glory to God in front of others by recognizing our frailty, our dependence and need for him. That's why the Apostle Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. There's something incredibly powerful about the gospel that we have embraced that is lived out. It's incredibly, incredibly powerful. So we move now from the, the power of love exposed to the next thing, and that would be the promise of love extended. Now, we could come to this passage, which is really Jesus's prediction that Peter is going to deny him, and just think about, ah, oh, see, Peter, he's going to deny him, and you know, Peter's bad, don't follow this example, and there's elements of truth there that maybe we, we look at at another time. But I think what's going on here is, is another facet of love on display for us here. And it's, it's the promise of love that is extended. Now let's just think about this. Let's read this passage and ask ourselves, what is it that love promises? Verse 36 and following. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said to him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now let's just kind of step back and work ourselves through this, this text. Peter wanted to be loyal to Jesus and to follow him wherever he was going. That clearly comes out of this passage. That's his desire. Now, I would, I would, if I asked the question here this morning, how many, how many of you want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? How many of you want to be loyal to him? All of our hands would go up. For, we're, we're for children of God. That's our desire. We want to do that. The question is, will we do that, right? He had walked with Jesus for three years. He had been changed and the prospect of Jesus leaving without him was probably very hard for him to fathom. And Jesus responds with clarifying words, where I'm going, you cannot follow. Well, why could he not follow? Because he was going to the cross. 
It's not like, Peter, yeah, come up and hang out with me, all right? I mean, literally, that's not his job. Jesus was to be the lamb slain, not Peter. Peter, you can't do this. You can't follow me. Here we have a promise to Peter, though. After I'm gone, after you deny me, after you preach at Pentecost, after you live your life as my servant, then you will come, then you will follow. Now, the historians say, and legend, not legend, but tradition says, that Peter was crucified upside down at his death. Don't know if that's true. But there is some significance there that he did live an incredible life for the Lord and was martyred ultimately. Now, Peter, ever persistent, isn't satisfied. Anyone here like Peter? God, I don't like what you're saying. Um, I don't know that I agree with you. You know, if you could like sit down, have like a board meeting with him. Let's go over these things. You know, positives and minuses. I think I know. You know, no, Peter doesn't want to listen. He keeps persisting on what he wants. He isn't satisfied. He wants Jesus to know that he is loyal. And because he wants him to know that he's loyal, he basically says, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, you've got to love Peter for this. You've got to love his loyalty. You've got to love his passion. You've got to love the fact that he, he stands behind his master and says, listen, I'm the guy. I'll be there through thick and thin. I can just imagine the picture. Jesus in a gentle, warm and prophetic manner looks at Peter and says, will you lay down your life for me? And Peter, still resolute with his loyalty, doesn't budge. <laughs> yes, I will. And Jesus continues to speak with an honest and tender voice and says, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, I'm not exactly sure how Peter would respond to that. I know that when the rooster crowed, it all came together. But at that point in time, no, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. I want to be loyal, right? And what's the point of all this? The point is that Jesus is promising that his love will extend to the sinful failings of his most loyal servants. Get this. You and I fail. You and I sin good desires, good motives, desire to be loyal, and yet we sin miserably. And yet God doesn't give up on us. God's love extends to those who are sinful and are his children. He knows that that we will fall short of his glory. We know Or he knows that we will act and speak in ways that betray our allegiance to him. He knows that we we will think that we are stronger than we really are. He knows that we will be consumed with guilt and desire to be restored to him. And he he knows human nature. And he knows the struggles that, that we face. And so... We have this incredible promise of love. And friends, this is, in, this is so amazing for us. And I think so comforting for us. He does not give up on us. Even, even though we say things to him, I promise I'm going to do this, I promise I'm going to do this, and we fail. And we sin. Now friends, many of us 
walk through life carrying incredible regrets. Now, a, a regret is something that in the quietness of your own heart, when you lay your head down on the pillow at night or you know, you're, you're, you're all by yourself and you're reflecting over life, it's one of those things that just comes back to you and comes back to you and you say, I just wish I had done something different here. I hate the fact that I did X, Y, and Z. Now, it could be pride. It could be all sorts of different things that are in- incorporated there. But it's a regret. And, and, and we live with things like that. And friends, th- th- there are reflections of sinful choices maybe that we've made that now have a lasting mark on us. We wish we could go back. We wish we could change what we said. We wish we could change what we did. But it's done. And what we need to do now, what we can do now, really is twofold. Number one is to step into the love that is extended to us through this glorious gospel. If you're God's child, you can step into that love because he promises that love continues. He promises that, that grace and that, that forgiveness continues in your life. So you're stepping into that love. Second thing is that you see yourself as God sees you. Forgiven and clothed in the righteousness or the glory of Christ. When God looks down at you, even though you have those regrets, even those regrets are paid for, you may still feel the weight of those regrets because you haven't attributed forgiveness to yourself and to your own sinfulness because maybe you have too much pride to say, you know what, I actually did that and it was my choice. But you need to embrace the forgiveness that God gives because he forgives your pride in that. Friends, regrets are really you know, past sins and past struggles that we have not fully attributed God's forgiveness toward. Just like Peter warns, sorry, just like Peter, whose arrogance and good intentions in a private upper room with friends and good food are less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. That's what Carson says. Just like here, we may be gathered together and say, hey, you want to live for Jesus? And always like, yeah, I've come together, let's live for Jesus, right? And then you leave, and this afternoon, you're put in a situation where it's like, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? And you go the wrong direction, and you sin, and you're like, oh, I failed! It was so easy to do it here when I was with the body of Christ, but when I'm out there under the pressure of friends that are not believers or co-workers, and pew. So just like Peter, it's much easier to say it in a nice, comfortable presence of an upper room with the rest of the disciples and the master than it is to say, in the darkness of a garden when there are soldiers and, and friends. We're just like Peter. <laughs> and just like Peter is blind to his weakness and self-assessment, so can we be. We don't see ourselves for, for who we really are. We don't see the struggle. Uh, we don't see the sin maybe that is so glaring in our lives. Yet, the love of God never abandons his children. He's faithful to the end. Now friends, it's, it's just so important for us to see here that this, this pure love in heaven is the source and is the basis of Jesus' love for us and Jesus' love for us is the basis of his commandment to us to love one another and that same love extends not only to our love for others but it also extends to we who are his disciples who will be sinful and we will fail him, we'll fail to do his will, we'll fail to be obedient, we won't be like Christ, we will be like our sinful selves.
but his love extends toward us and it is constant, it is faithful to the end. Now, I want to end with really three thoughts here. The first thought is this. I want you to notice our, <coughs> um, our mission and vision statement here. And, and oftentimes we, we neglect a certain portion of it, right? Which I've highlighted. We exist to glorify God by being a community of believers who are actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel in Jesus Christ. I mean, we, we focus in on knowing, we focus in on applying, we focus on proclaiming, we focus in on the word of God and the gospel in Jesus Christ. But we breeze through. We exist to glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God? Based on what we've looked at here today, to glorify God means that our desire in all that we do is to give honor to his name, to give him by our actions, by our words, a right and proper, what's the word? Reputation. So when we are gathered together for worship, that all that we're doing here is done in such a way that when people participate in worship, they have a right reputation of God. They see him for who he truly is. That word glorify comes from the Greek word doxa. And we get the word orthodoxa, orthodoxy from that. So you know, are you, is your church orthodox? That doesn't mean we're Greek. What it means is that we believe that we have a right understanding of God. That we have a right um, awareness of God, that we are truly glorifying God for who he is revealed in scripture. That's why we say if someone isn't orthodox, that means that they do not have a right opinion of God. That they are presenting an opinion or an understanding of God that is not orthodox, that is not accurate. So to say that someone is orthodox means that they are accurate. What they're saying, how they're doing church, how they're doing ministry is a right reflection of what God has revealed in his word. We exist then to glorify God. Now here, is it possible that what we have started out in pursuing as a church, although we desire to glorify God, we find out there's some things in there that do not glorify God, and we have to adjust ourselves. What's the answer? Absolutely, because we're frail people who are doing the best that we can to determine what truly glorifies God. So this glorifying God is key. I'm just saying oftentimes we, we breeze by it because like, yeah, obviously we didn't glorify God. Yeah, what's the real thing that we're about? No, the real thing we're about is glorifying God. The rest of it is how we flesh it out. We want others to have a right opinion of who God is. We want to have a right opinion of who God is. We are hungry for that. That is our pursuit. That's why we desire to know it's not just for head knowledge, it's because in knowing, we have greater capacity for applying. You see, the disciples, in their responsibility to be faithful to the command that Jesus gives them, are able to understand that commandment by virtue of Jesus' example, but Jesus' example is a reflection of his relationship with his Father. It's that knowledge that helps then them understand what it is they're commanded to do by loving one another. It's not just being kind 
and being tolerant or whatever it else, you know, contemporary Christians might say that would water down what God really is talking about when he's talking about loving one another. So to love one another means that I'm speaking the truth in, what's the word? In love. <laughs> that I'm, 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 I'm speaking God's word. I'm, I'm bringing his word to bear to help people with their struggles, their problems, their sin, their perspective, their discernment. It's all part of it. Glorifying God. Secondly, if this were your last night with those whom you loved, what would you say and how would you behave? I just think about it. This is Jesus' last night with his disciples. What does he do? He washes their feet. He explains a little bit of a picture of what this, this, this love looks like, and he says, now you need to love one another. He, he leaves these lasting words. What would you say? There's a number of voices that I have floating around in my head. That's not because I'm schizophrenic or anything like that, but we all have voices that are bouncing around our head, and usually they're voices from the past that are speaking into our situation that are spurring us on. That's, what's hap- that's what I'm talking about, and there's one voice in particular that I have in the back of my mind that is constantly there or, or comes up at times when, when I'm just contemplating ministry and it's the, it's the voice of my pastor who was uh, Paul Vanneman. And uh, I was saved under his ministry. His son actually was a youth pastor and I was saved under his son's ministry but he was the, the, the main pastor at the church and um, he was just one of these guys that was just full of life. And, and uh, I happened to be privileged to be a part of a of a wave that was going through the church at that point in time where there were a number of young men who were, who were hungry and desiring to serve the Lord with their lives and were giving their lives for the, for the purpose of you know, being pastors or even some missionaries. And um, you know, some things he drilled into us. Here, here's one of them. He was, he was just a, a larger-than-life kind of a person. and on, Almost every preacher, young man who desired to preach, wanted to preach just like him, okay? And he would say this, listen, God is not calling you to be another Paul Vanneman make sure you are the best Rod Phillips you can be for the glory of God. Friends, that's just incredibly wise advice. Because God hasn't called me to be a John MacArthur, a John Piper, Alistair Begg, or whoever it might be. He's called me to be me. Now, it's not, it's not a, I just want to be me thing, okay? It's the, fact, listen, it's, it's, it's the fact that God has wired each of us to be used for his glory, the way he's created us. That means that you, being you, have a rightful place in the body of Christ and the gifts that he's given you are purposeful and helpful and should be used. Don't try and be someone else. Be yourself, the yourself that God has made you. Now learn from others. So that was very, very impactful. Here's another one. Make your life count for Jesus. You know, whatever you do, Whatever is part of your path, make sure that in your doing it, that you're making your life count for Jesus. So if you're a parent, make sure your life is counting for Jesus and raising those kids. If you're a child, make your life count for Jesus. When you're opening the, the books to study, make sure that what you're doing is counting for Jesus because it's all part of his plan. And then his love for people and his love for missions has had a deep effect on me. That's, I think, where my, my, my passion for missions really ultimately comes from from his example and his influence. And um, one of the things, though, that happened with him is that he had such a passion for missions and for pastors and missions 
This is back in 1990, early 90s or whatever. Um, he would take pastors um, to the mission field because back then there were a lot of pastors that had not been to the mission field at all. All they knew about missions was, oh, we, we support this particular person $25 a month. And you probably know what I'm talking about if you've been in the church a while. So they really didn't know what the mission field was like. In particular, they didn't know what national pastors were like. And so his passion was to take other pastors from America to that particular place and to show them the mission field, to experience it. And uh, on one of those missions trips, they took a little, little detour and took a day to rest and they went to the coast of Costa Rica and uh, they were out there playing in the water and while they were in the water, um, he was taken out by a strong wave and a strong current and there were a couple other pastors that were in there. They were young and strong enough that they were able to make it back to shore but he was not, and this is what they said about him, that he came up for one last breath of air, and here's what he said. He says, I love you, and I love Jesus. Now, friends, those are lasting words. I mean, they're simple, but when you know the character of a person, you know what they're passionate about, and you know that they could say one thing with that last breath of air, what are they gonna say? I love you, and I love Jesus. What is it that you would say if today were the last day of your life and you had your loved ones gathered around the table? Would it be something impactful? Or would it be something that would be superficial? I know that as we gathered for his funeral, myself and a number of pastors that had grown out of that ministry as well as other pastors, we gathered together and we determined to carry, out, carry that mantle to make our lives count for Jesus, to be the best Rod Phillips, Jim Newcomer, Ken Dockery, Steve Henning, Tig Vanneman that we could be for the glory of God, and then to love Jesus and to love others. Those are voices that I, I hear because of the impact of his life on me. So are you willing to make your life count for Jesus then? Is the last one. Are you willing to say, Jesus, what you desire in me is the most important thing for me today. It's the most important thing for my life. That, that doesn't mean that you don't love your wife. It doesn't mean you don't love your husband. It doesn't mean you don't love your kids. It means that you love them through the lens and the, the, the filter, you might want to say, of Jesus as you look at your responsibility, as you look at what he's given you, say, I want to do this your way, God. And the job you have and the, 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 the neighbors that you have, or whatever it might be, you're doing it in such a way that you want to make your life count for Jesus. It's not about yourself, it's about Him. It's a new commandment I've given to you that you love one another, that you follow His example, and you do it for His glory, because you want His reputation to be seen, to be manifest, among men. Lord, help us today with the things that we have considered. Help us to be reminded, Lord, of how much you love us. Lord, may we not remove, uh, I should say, Lord, maybe we should not um, fall into the trap of just simply feeling the feelings of love. But Lord, we would be mindful to know what that love actually looks like and to see what that love has done on our behalf and to see how that love continues to be 
at work in our lives today. Lord, you continue to bless us. You continue to love us. You continue to provide and care for us. Your Holy Spirit is present and active and at work in our lives. And Lord, help us to, to bask in that love. But Lord, also help us to then live our lives in such a way that we would reflect that love through our lives to others around us. And Lord, you know that we're gonna fail. You know that we're gonna fall flat on our face many times. And your love, Lord, continues to be extended to us. Lord, help us to grab a hold of that, to trust that, and to keep getting up and to keep living for you. And Lord, to make our lives count for you. So that, Lord, ultimately, we as as a church and we as individuals can glorify your name. We can bring glory to who you are. We can give everyone around us the right kind of reputation and understanding of your character. Lord, help us today, we ask in your name. Amen.